The Tree of Tremendousness, a fictionalised account of my childhood and an inquiry into the origins of male chauvinism by Thomas Jackson. Episode 7, The Church. At the other end of Black Lane, from the Maxwells, lay the square, in which were to be found the vital organs of village life, the public house, the church, the school and the village hall. I regarded the jolly bricklayer with an absolute horror, not untinged with fascination, as Victorian Methodists must have looked on brothels and as Belfast Protestants are said to view Catholic churches. It was here that Mr Dobbs drank his magic potions that so spectacularly transformed his behaviour. Mrs Cribbs, who ran the jolly bricklayer in the absence of her husband, who was on active service, I cast in the role of old witch or Circe, we'd had read to us at school the story of Odysseus and Circe, fatally attracting poor passing sailors like Mr Dobbs and transforming them into pigs. I ran past the public house as quickly as I could, lest Mrs Cribbs should rush out and force me to drink a potion so that I would be turned into a pig too. Oink, oink, oink! The implications of the Stanley boy's taunts still worried me. Perhaps I was showing pig-like tendencies already. Perhaps I should ask my mother. But I could not bring myself, actually, to ask her straight out. Do you think I may be turning into a pig? In any case, I said to myself, by way of avoiding issue, she was so used to me, she might not have noticed. You can, after all, get used to almost anything in your nearest and dearest. So I adopted the strategy instead of touching all four walls of my bedroom just before I went to bed, dashing round them chanting, No, no, one a pig of me! No, no, one a pig of me! No, no, one a pig of me! This hypotropaic technique seemed to be fairly effective as far as self-preservation was concerned, but of course might easily be overridden by Mrs. Cribbs and entirely lose its efficacy if Mrs. Cribbs were to rush out and succeed in dragging me into her public house. The more that I thought about it, the more intractable the problem of how you could be sure that you were remaining you and not turning into somebody or something else seemed. But at least I could try and make sure that I was not caught by Mrs. Cribbs. The oink, oink, oink sounds coming out from the jolly bricklayer were unmistakable. Once I knew what I was listening for, they were incontrovertible. What was it like in there? Did she have former inhabitants of the village tethered in styes? It was horrible, beyond my powers of conception. I would therefore rush past the jolly bricklayer, crying with fear, and arrive gasping and shaking with gratitude that I had once again survived the perilous passages past Mrs. Cribbs and fall exhausted into the churchyard. I felt safe in the churchyard. Here was a place I loved. Graves mouldered, grasses rustled, trees as old as England, tranquil, noble, graciously embracing the air, majestically embracing the years, leaved and unleaved, and then, in their slow rhythms, leaved again. Layers upon layers of past time slowly and soundlessly released their ineffably enriching spiritual nutrients, as if in a compost heap. Here I knew you were in contact with the unseen. I would stare fascinated for hours at the gravestones. What eloquence was here! Georgina, 
relics of the late Alfred Dunning Esquire of this parish, May the 14th, 1885. I am the resurrection and the life. Arthur and Eve Dobson, November the 4th, 1832 and April the 16th, 1874. Together now, in the morning, I shall see thy face. Horatio Crisp, a man as valorous indeed as he was gentle in love, he is dearly remembered. Born May the 10th, 1846, died August the 13th, 1913, though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death. Betty Bold, aged seven years, dearly beloved daughter of Leonard and Cynthia Bold, died October the 1st, 1933, suffer little children to come unto me. Where have all these people gone? I tried to find out from numbers of grown-ups, but all of them I could see fob me off. They would immediately put on a special story face, head falling to one side, mouth slack, eyes a bit screwed up, like Dave Ruff always did when he told lies. Miss Franks, our headmistress, always saw straight through him, and Miss Thwaites, her assistant, never did. Since Miss Franks always seemed to know when I was telling lies as well, I suppose I too must at times have put on a story face. But this was an especially untruthful lie face, as the above characteristics were also accompanied by a gaping, soppy look, much like the one they reserved for cuddly animals, or June, when they saw her playing with her doll. The people, or souls, as they had now become, according to the grown-ups, had gone to heaven. There was also a place called hell, but, except for Hitler, who was not there yet, but was going to be, there was nobody in it. I could see from the beginning that this was all part of the world of imaginary delusions and fictitious daydreams in which adults habitually lived. When I asked this question about the whereabouts of the people referred to on the gravestones, my mother's tone of voice, usually so robustly combative on religious matters, went sentimental, and she put on the look. And so had my father, when I brought up the matter during his leave. And as for the vicar, Mr Parker Potts, whenever I brought up the subject of the dead in the churchyard with him, he laughed so much his face grew purple and his eyes watered and he had to sit down in case he had a seizure. Intellectually, the problem seemed insoluble. But on the level of feeling, I knew differently. The dead were not asleep. This is all rubbish, this falling asleep. But was somewhere in the churchyard only just out of sight, as if they'd gone to hide in a game of hide-and-seek. I'm shutting my eyes, Horatio Crisp, and Arthur and Eve Dobson, and counting up to twenty, and then you'll be up for fines. I'm coming, I can see you behind that yew tree, and hiding in the corner of the church. Especially close were Horatio Crisp and Betty Bold. Horatio Crisp, because he was such a nice gentleman, 
I thought for some reason that valorous meant that he never got out of bed in the mornings, a dear humanising characteristic in his previous life, that is, not now, because now he's hiding among the gravestones. And Betty Bold, because she was my own special soul. Any day, I felt, I would find her, and then we would play together. When I had found her, it would be my turn to hide. There was a place at the end of the churchyard, behind a water butt, where I was fairly certain she would never find me. Dearest Betty, I'm coming, but give me a clue. Betty, where are you, Betty? Of course, I did not really imagine that the souls were hiding in the churchyard in the literal I'm-sitting-at-the-table-having-my-dinner sort of sense. Only grown-ups think in this sort of way. They have, of course, usually quite lost any sense of secret knowledge, the knowledge of the passage that we did not take towards the door that we never opened into the rose garden. They then compound their error by dreaming up some absolutely ridiculous and impossible fairy tale fictions, chuck a few weights and measurements at these Aunt Sally's, and then imagine they have confirmed to themselves the empiricist and utilitarian sort of world in which they think they live. They then stick up big, jeering, not possible notices. Whereas, of course, the incontrovertible evidence of the imagined real surrounds them everywhere. No, it was clear to me that this hide-and-seek with the souls was a mythologem, a tool for grappling with the unseen, vastly superior to the debased superstitions of the going-to-heaven tosh. In the grown-up theology, the souls were absent, so you didn't really know whether they existed or not whereas in my theology they were present, so there was no doubt. The souls really were hiding behind the gravestones, not in a boring, ordinary kind of way. Every child who knows that there are fairies at the bottom of the garden would appreciate this. The theology of the adults, it was becoming clearer and clearer to me, was decidedly smelly. I knew the interior of the church well, as I was taken there by my mother every Sunday to matins, and sometimes to even song as well. The services were usually conducted by the Reverend Parker Potts, who was a favourite neither of my mother nor of myself. Not of my mother, because he was of low church persuasion, and had no intention of reserving the Blessed Sacrament. Nor of myself, as I found him a theological naive realist, in any case, as I told my mother, his services were stupid and boring. He was frequently to be seen in a padre's uniform as he was chaplain to the home guard in the area, whose morale he sought to sustain by paceless jokes aggravated by much guffawing laughter and by loudly proclaimed unholier-than-thou remarks. The church itself, it was seen to be seen so at once, was a fortress of the church militant. In the church, in the porch, there was a map of the world festooned with ribbons and coloured pins, indicating the progress of the British armies. In the earlier part of the war, this map had been emblazoned with a quotation from the Psalms, O God, do not keep silence, do not hold thy peace, or be still, O God, for lo, thy enemies are in tumult. O God, make them whirling dust, or like chaff, before the wind. But later in the war, 
as the tide of battle began to turn against the Germans, this was amended to, They have digged a pit for me, but have even fallen into it themselves. Within, the chancellor of the church was bravely and colourfully hung with regimental flags. The Reverend Parker Potts's sermons were both long and ferocious. The Allied armies were as the hosts of the Lord, bringing justice and vengeance onto the heads of the wicked. The walls of Jericho would soon come tumbling down. Then they utterly destroyed all in the city, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and asses, with the edge of the sword. The only aspect of the services I enjoyed was the hymn singing. Under conditions of war, onward Christian soldiers, for those in peril on the sea and with power fields and scatter, were sung with an intensity and sincerity difficult to imagine in times of peace. For a brief moment, people's spirits escaped their stultifyingly private packages of fleshly sorrow and arose as blended as their voices in a soaring and exhilarating unison of song. I liked the church best when I slipped into it on my own, as I sometimes did on my way home from school and found it empty. To reach the massive latch on the door and lift it up, I had to stand on the ancient stone seat at the side of the porch. The door itself was of the type that opens into magic worlds in fairy tales, thick, ponderous, rounded at the top, studded with iron bolt heads, slow swing and creaking of hinge. You crossed the worn step of the threshold with hesitant foot and a sharp catching of the breath. The atmosphere of the church made you involuntarily shiver. The door shut behind you with a conclusive thud. However much I was expecting it, the thud of the door closing always made me jump out of my skin. You were immediately hit by the emptiness and the silence. The clock ticked in preternaturally loud thumps, as if you were listening to your own pulse. There was a damp and mouldy smell, rank and sharp, a smell of age and absence and decay, musky and sour. You could lift up a wooden cover on the front and see your own face reflected in the water. A prehistoric man seeing himself for the first time in a pool in the rock. Surrounded by its pillars, as if by tree trunks rising up to the air, to branch and leaf, into arch and spandrel and rib, the clear space of the nave lay like a magic glade in a forest. On bright days, effigies carved out of dazzling sunlight, shaped by the reflected mouldings of the high clear story windows, and dabbled with simmering blobs of scarlet and purple, where diamond panes of coloured glass stood out gloriously from their transparent fellows. These heads and shoulders of light moved slowly in stately figure across the white plaster wall of the nave, as if dancing to solemn music in time to the sun. 
the tautly concentrated emptiness only recently disturbed by the echoing ripples of my entrance jostled and murmured and resettled and then once more grew deep and intense. The emptiness declaring itself slowly and invisibly, began gradually and then more and more urgently to be crowded and crammed with clamouring absences. Quaking, I would squeeze myself into the corner of a pew. The quivering, impassioned silence began to become intensely alive, nervous with disclosures and communications, as if the building of the church was some astonishing listening device at Jodrell Bank or Filingdales, designed to harvest messages from outer space. For centuries, every villager had looked at the church and said, There's a place. There at last I shall belong each adding a precious secret thought of hope and fear in his or her heart, so that by now the sense of invisible, transcendental weight in the sanctifying repository had become enormous. Each thought had blended with all the others, nothing ever lost, each a shining drop of air and silence. The echoing emptiness was packed and seething with these secret presences. When first I became aware of these spirits in the church, they frightened me terribly. But then, in a scared and jumpy sort of way, I got to like them. They seemed nice old things, mostly, joyful and peaceful souls. You can find out information about these souls from the gravestones in the churchyard, but you couldn't meet them directly. It was only in the intensely metaphysical and musty atmosphere of the church itself that encounters took place. Of course, you could never ever explain to the grown-ups about the church. They would never understood that here was a crossing place between the timers and time, a metaphysical organ connecting all those people who lived in the village with all who had gone before. Back, 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 back. Strands as invisible as air going back, back to a far, far pagan past. Then suddenly I would start to feel the onset of the terror and begin to shake all over. The souls started to crowd round me closer and closer. They wanted my living breath, my circulating blood. They wanted to take me off with them to the world of the spirits. I can feel them beckoning me. I know they're friendly and kindly, but I don't want to go off to the world of the spirits. It was only when I felt them beckoning that I would become so dreadfully frightened. The dense atmosphere began to close in upon me. I would sit in a pew at the back, shivering and trembling from head to foot. It was always the same. To begin with, I would be so sure that there were nice benign spirits, I hardly felt frightened at all. But then my confidence would suddenly evaporate. It was when I felt them beckoning to me and reaching out to me and touching me that the terror became insupportable. The thudding of the clock became louder and louder and more and more menacing. The air grew heavier and heavier and thicker and thicker and darker and darker. Response of my feelings to these increasingly intense concentrative atmosphere grew more and more acute until I felt 
as if hammers were beating in my brain and wires were stretched tight in my head. But I had no words, no concepts in which to give cognitive form to these fearful, clamouring forces. Thud, 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 thud. The spirits were about me. If only I could see them, think them, give them form of some sort. Then I could distance them and they would not be so close to me. Yet even in spite of these appalling and fearsome dreads, I could not tear myself away. This meeting with the spirits in the church was fearful and terrible, yet compelling and wonderful and enthralling and entrancing. A fly buzzed in a window casement. A pew creaked eerily. Outside the walls, a bird sang as if in another dimension. The silence deepened. Suddenly, I could bear it no longer. The desire not to know these unknowable things became all at once irresistible. Fear seized me, and I rushed from the church, looking neither to right nor left, running as fast as I could, past the jolly brick there, across the square, past Mrs. Wobbers, and up that lane, until they arrived, panting and exhausted, and fell into the safety of the garden and the jungle house. Oh, to be at home, secure until the next time, when in spite of my terrible pre-visionary fears, I would feel anguishly impelled to seek a fresh encounter. (laughs) 